Hey, elementary and middle schoolers, uh, you guys can all head out. To the church in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus to be his holy people. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. To God's elect, to the saints. That's just a sample of some of the, the greetings of some of Paul's letters to the early church, a constant reminder of their new identity in Christ. The voice of a spiritual father to his spiritual children reminding them of who they are. They're not the people that they once were, but they are new creations in Christ Jesus. They have a, a new identity to embrace and believe. We all do. Last week, we took a look at a conversation that Jesus had with this Jewish expert in the law who asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment out of all the Old Testament laws that there were? And Jesus replied by boiling down all of those biblical commands down to two. If you remember, he said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said, this is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, all of us have this shared story. Every one of us was born into an earthly family, but then we encountered Christ and were chosen and adopted into a new spiritual family where we were made sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And this spiritual family is known as the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide. And in particular, we're a part of that church expression at Wellspring Community Church in St. Joseph, Missouri at 1030-ish every Sunday morning and throughout the week. And God has collected this group of relative strangers, and he's kind of thrown us all together, united by our shared faith in Christ, and he's commanded us to love one another deeply. And as I shared last week, that's, that's a calling that I knew very little about how to pull off but something I desired so deeply in life, to be seen, to be known, to be loved, united in our desire to honor Christ by how we care for each other, collectively laying down our own self-interests for the good of the whole. That, that vision is so compelling to me even to this day. It is what drives me, honestly, as a pastor. <clears throat> and this journey towards loving others begins with learning to love God with all of our being. That's what we talked about last week. We, we obviously acknowledge we're never going to be able to completely do it, but that that should be the ruling desire of our heart, right? The thing that just, man, compels us. We really want to be those people that give all of ourselves to him. And as we discussed last week, our complete love for God flows out of a place of gratitude, right? It's in response to what he's already done for us. If you remember, we looked at this passage in 1 John 4, 
verses 9 to 11, that says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He sent his son. He initiated. He showed us what love was by willingly laying down his life for our sins. So we gladly love him in return. And this love for God must come first. Because from him flow all of the essential ingredients or elements that we're going to need. Right? From him flow grace and mercy and kindness and patience and gentleness that we will need in order to love others well. We can't pour into others what we haven't first received from God. Now, as we move out in concentric circles, so if at the, at the core is loving God first and foremost, now we move out into that second command, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. So that begs the question, how do we love ourselves? Right? How do we love ourselves? Because we will love others as we love ourselves. So how do you treat yourself? I hope you guys realize that, that you preach the gospel to you more than anyone else. You hear your voice more than any other voice in your life. We are all in our head a lot. Nobody's voice is louder. So... What's the story you tell yourself about you? Last week, we talked about two kinds of people. The first being those who love themselves too much. I was slash am one of those people. For me, in the absence of an earthly father engaged in my childhood, um, which for a young boy was pretty um, devastating, that lack of affirmation from him. So what I did, how I channeled that, was that I determined that I was going to be my own best cheerleader. And so I constantly, throughout my childhood, just told myself how great I was. Um, outward confidence was never my issue, Okay. Now, the subtle lie a cocky person starts to believe is that you don't need God. I pretty much got this. I can handle life just fine. And it certainly didn't lead me to loving other people well at all. As I shared last week, I spent many of my early years in life, really up through my 20s and 30s, really kind of using people to reinforce my positive self-image. And some of that positive self-image was actually um, reinforced by my personality. Okay, so that's a factor too. I'm naturally kind of an outgoing, outspoken person with a lot of leadership qualities and things like that. I'm an influencer of others. So admittedly, having a positive self-image came easier for me because of just my natural wiring. It's a little bit of just kind of how God made me. So for others like me, 
There's a lot of verses in the Bible about humility, <laughs> right? And I love to tell people that the Bible is the great leveler. So wherever we are, sometimes if we are out of balance, <laughs> that the word of God's job is to bring us back and level us out. If some of us are, are uh, you know, a little full of ourselves, <laughs> God's word pulls us down. Okay, and then some of us struggle in the other direction. God's word pulls us up to this middle ground. As I've gotten older, I've come to realize, at least it's been my experience, that many more people, it seems, have this negative voice in their heads that treats them really poorly. I know many of you beat yourself up over past mistakes. You're fueled by guilt and shame. Or maybe you were told somewhere along the journey by abusive parents, by a teacher or a coach or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, that you were worthless. And somewhere along the way, you resigned yourself. You kind of chose to embrace that narrative that you're not enough. And that negative critical voice plays on loop in your head. Second-guessing every conversation or interaction, kind of like Kenny was talking about a few weeks ago, right? Every interaction, you're coming back, oh, man, what do they think about me? You know, did I say that right? Just laboring over things. You desperately try to care for others, striving to be the best husband, wife, son, daughter, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend you can be, hoping that you'll be loved in return, that your efforts will validate your worth. And it's exhausting. Learning to love yourself is a journey. It's why Justin's series that we just finished up, Flourish, was so important leading into this one. We have to understand why we act the way we do. Why we have these false narratives that drastically affect our perspectives. We have to look at things about, you know, as we talked about, how do our attachment patterns affect the way that we love others and love ourselves? Do we love ourselves by keeping healthy boundaries with people who would take advantage of us or suck the life out of us? Can we hold the good and the bad in healthy integration so we can navigate those things with others well? If I struggle to believe that good is possible or to embrace suffering without going to despair, how can I love others well in those spaces if I struggle to do it for myself, right? All of these questions and concerns are why we have to take our healing seriously. When we're, we're, when we're the walking wounded, we can't really care for the brokenhearted well. I want us to go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. John chapter 4, it's uh, page 15, 14. <clears throat> if you've watched The Chosen, it's probably one of the greatest scenes. I think it's at the end of season 1. But it's about this encounter that Jesus has, and, and I don't want to make too many assumptions. A lot of you guys know the story, but just, just a brief overview 
There's kind of three main areas in Israel at that time. There's the northern area called Galilee, which included uh, where Jesus was born, Nazareth, Capernaum. Um, then there's middle area called Samaria, and then the southern area called Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. And so when people would travel for pilgrimage to Jerusalem for religious holidays and stuff, they would not go through Samaria. Samaritans to them were what they would consider half-breeds. These were people who were Jews, but during the time of uh, occupation by foreign enemies, they had intermarried with Assyrians and Babylonians, and so they had mixed their pure you know, uh, Jewish blood as seen as God's chosen people with others, and so they were really scorned and looked down on. So Jews would actually cross the Jordan River and go like three extra days around Samaria to get back home. Like that's how much they hated them and looked down on them. So let's look at verse 4 of chapter 4. John's writing and he said, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to. He chose to, right? So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And that tells us something because most people go to the well in the morning in the cool of the day, not in the heat of the day. So this woman is coming out at a time when nobody else is around. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. <clears throat> Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself, as did all of his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet and our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let's skip down to, to verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Go down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So if we go back to the beginning of the story, how do you think this woman was treating herself? 
How was she treating herself? We have some clues, but we're also guessing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, she wasn't worthy of company because of her past, kind of going out at a time when she knew she wasn't going to run into other people, wasn't going to have to hear the snide comments or answer, answer the, the questions she didn't want to talk about, right? So she had isolated. My guess is that there was a fair amount of shame and guilt built up. And there's so much to learn here about how Jesus lovingly and tenderly enters into her story. I want you to notice his spirit and his posture. He begins by um, entering in in a posture of vulnerability. Okay? He knows, I don't have anything to get the water out with. So I have to ask her for help. So he puts himself in position to be served by her. She has something to offer him, and he allowed himself to be served. And I think that's a really great thing for us to remember as we're engaging the lost. Coming vulnerable instead of the ones who feel like they have all the answers and allowing ourselves to be served by others, I feel like opens up pathways of conversation and trust. Take a look at verse 10 again. She had just kind of said, you know, how are you a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Before Jesus confronts her sin, before she's confessed anything or asked for forgiveness at all, he offers her living water. He says, your life can change right now if you'll receive this gift from me. And even after her shameful story is revealed, there's no sermon on the evils of promiscuity. There's no dragging her through the mud of her past transgressions. The sum of her life is received with tenderness and grace, while also not tiptoeing around the truth. But my guess is that Jesus is pretty sure that she's aware of her failure in life, that he probably doesn't need to reiterate how broken she is. Let me ask you this. Before this encounter with Jesus, what do you think her, her capacity was for loving others well? What do you think her capacity was for loving others well? Probably not great, right? Because when we know when we're stuck in cycles of brokenness in our life, that, that eats up space in our heart and mind. Energy, trying to cover over, uh, trying to justify maybe, trying to convince ourselves that we're, we have something to offer, that others would even want our presence around, right? 
But as she embraces this living water and the kindness that Jesus showed her despite her shameful past, she was then able to love others in her community and share her joy. The same people who had shunned her, who probably ridiculed and mocked her, she was eager to share the good news of Christ with because of how he had handled her heart. A true and powerful encounter with the living Christ where we embrace the healing that he's offering us through his forgiveness and unconditional love allows us then to love others freely. There is always more grace in God than sin in me. Did you hear that? There is always more grace in God than sin in me. Right, Paul writes about that in Romans 5.20. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. The purpose of the rules is for us to realize that we can't keep them. I might have never walked on grass that I wasn't supposed to walk on until somebody puts a sign up that says, keep off the lawn. It might have never crossed my mind to go in the lawn. But now that somebody's telling me I can't go in the lawn, by God, I'm going in the lawn, right? <laughs> the law was created to reveal the un, you know, ungodly things in our hearts that roam around. so that our sin might actually increase, which would then hopefully get us out of this illusion that we could keep all the rules and follow things and not need God's help. But where the sin increased, it says the grace increased all the more. You can't out-sin God's grace. Why? <laughs> well, David summarized it like this in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Grace increases all the more because the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. It's who he is. God calls us many things. I began my sermon by reminding you of a few titles that he gives us. Chosen, adopted, holy, blameless, redeemed. Or as Paul says, I mean, sorry, as Peter says it, God's special possession. He's crazy about us. Why? Because we received the living water. We embrace the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, surrendering our life to the lordship of his son. We, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, we didn't ignore the sacrifice. 
a lot of the world is ignoring the sacrifice of his son, but not us. And by our confession of faith, we became one with Christ, right? A lot of the things that I read about in the beginning to the church in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, right? God loves us because we are in Christ Jesus. When we began a relationship with him, we became one with his son. And God loves his son. And so if we're in his son, he loves us. Not because of things that we've done, but because of who his son is. <laughs> Look at this amazing perspective shared by Ann Voskamp in her book, The Broken Way. She writes, you may believe in God, but never forget it's God who believes in you. He believes in the story he's writing through you. He believes in you as a gift the world needs. Christ is in you, so God can't help but believe in you. Just leave that up there for a moment. Feelings, thoughts about that idea, that concept. What strikes you as you read that? Yeah, he cuts through any societal norm or taboo issue. Yeah, yeah. When I read that, what I think about is my beginnings here. Um, I was given grace and mercy instead of justice. And through that process, a miracle has taken place in my life. And the story that is written through me is allowing me to help save other lives through my story. Hmm. Yeah, it begins with the fact that all of us got what we didn't deserve, right? <laughs> we got grace and mercy and forgiveness when we didn't deserve it. Yeah. How many of you have a hard time believing that God believes in you? Yeah. It's good to acknowledge, right? To be honest about it. I started actually this morning, just got a little curious. I went to Google and kind of just kind of Googled like how Americans feel about themselves. And Americans on the phone, on these surveys, lie through their teeth because it was like, oh yeah, I think I'm great. You know, like numbers were way too high for what I know I've experienced in doing life with people. It's like, come on people, be honest. Author Brene Brown writes this. If you think you are loving others well, but don't love yourself well, you're fooling yourself. Mm 
If you think you're loving others well, but don't love yourself well, you're fooling yourself. You can't pass on to others what you haven't received for yourself. This is a battlefield, isn't it? The scripture tells us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that all of us were created in the image of God. The Latin for that is imago di, right? Image of God. We are his reflection to the world. And Satan knows this. So he is going to attack our ability to receive God's love and to love ourselves. He is going to fill our head with lies and, and just false narratives, right? And the, our ability to love others as a result is going to be deeply inhibited by that. And some of us battle those lies more intensely than others. And again, some of that goes back to personality types as well. Some people are just constantly critical, critical of themselves and critical of others. The battle self-esteem issues. That's why we need one another so desperately. Remember the verse from 1 Peter 4a, we looked at last week. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Jesus covered over a multitude of that Samaritan woman's sins that day by coming vulnerably and tenderly and with the right balance of grace and truth. And he offered her a new narrative of freedom and joy, one where she didn't have to hide in isolation anymore, but she could actually play a leading role in the redemption of many other people. She was like, you know, the person that you see in the games in the, in the summer when nobody comes, like a bad baseball team who's like the lone person sitting up in the very corner, and he brings her down and puts her on the pitcher's mound. And it's like, no, this, this, you're actually the star of the game here. <laughs> I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrew chapter 10. It's page 1714. Hebrews 10, <clears throat> starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for we who promise, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I always kind of chuckle when I hear people say that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. 
I mean, that is the biggest cop-out ever. For one, it's, it's communicating that you don't need other people. Secondly, it's communicating that other people don't need you. Both of those things are lies, right? Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. <laughs> Apparently, first century, you know, people went to gladiator matches on Sunday instead of coming to church, or I don't know what they did, right? But encourage one another. Spur one another on. We can only do that when we're together, right? I'm reading slowly through the New Testament this year, as I read quickly through the whole, whole Bible last year. And the other day, I was on the, the scene at the end of Matthew, kind of the Last Supper and Jesus' arrest and kind of the aftermath of those things. And two disciples take center stage in Matthew's account, Judas and Peter. Judas, Matthew writes, right, he's the one that, that betrays Jesus and delivers him over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Peter, after saying, I would never disown you, right, disowns him three times in the early morning hours after Jesus' arrest. Both experience re extreme regret. Both are overcome by guilt and shame. But they handle their circumstances completely differently. Matthew writes that when Judas sees that Jesus is condemned and sentenced to death, he is filled with remorse and returns the 30 pieces of silver. And unable to see a, a pathway through to redemption for himself, Matthew writes that he went away and hanged himself. Peter, though equally as distraught, stayed in community. He was with the other disciples when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. And in that famous scene in the book of John, he's fishing out on a boat and he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the shore. And it says that Peter jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus, longing for redemption, believing it was possible to be restored even after such a big mistake. And as I read those accounts, probably back on like Tuesday or so, and, and I knew what I was going to be speaking about this week. I wondered, what was the story they told themselves about their failure that led to their reactions? What was the story they told themselves about their failures that led to their reactions? What was different about the way Judas and Peter loved themselves? Jesus died for both of them on the cross. But only one of them was able to accept that redemption. So I want to leave us with a question this morning. Something to, to ponder this week before we turn our attention in the weeks ahead to, to loving other people. <laughs> and that's this. What are we telling the world about God by the way we treat ourselves? What are we telling the world about God by the way we treat ourselves?
And guys, again, this can, this can go both ends of the spectrum. And so if we think really highly of ourselves, we can tend to communicate a message to the world that I'm not that bad. I'm not that messed up. <laughs> I don't need a savior as much as I really do. That's a, an unhealthy, warped perspective to communicate that this world is inherently good. <laughs> That's another one of the polls I read on Google this morning. 80% of people believe that humans are inherently good. That is anti-biblical. The Bible says that our hearts are inherently deceitful. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a savior. So that's what we're dealing with as we go out into this world, a world full of people who feel like humans are pretty good folks, right? So we know that, that the other side of the spectrum is rough, right? If we're constantly beating ourselves up and allowing guilt and shame to drive and motivate us, our ability to, what is that, what is that saying about God that we're not lovable, that, we, that you can, you know, out God's grace, that your situation that you've experienced is not a redeemable situation, that God can't enter in and turn that story around. If we believe that, then we're not really giving hope to other people in that same place that their life can change, that they can be transformed, that God can redeem that broken thing, right? So again, there's, there's some perspectives here that the, the word of God can hopefully balance out in our life. Guys, here's the truth. Every one of us was fearfully and wonderfully made by God and all of our frailty and flaws. He knows all of our pain and our struggles and he comes to us at the well of our hearts and he comes in need and he loves the idea of being served by us because he knows it will bring us joy. He offers us living water his redemptive love before we even get the words, I'm sorry, out of our lips. He encounters us with grace, but he's calling us to leave those old broken narratives of not enough behind or of too much behind. <laughs> so I just want to encourage you guys to receive it today and run back into town and tell everyone of the one who knew your whole story and embraced you anyway. And as we come to the communion table today, it's just a reminder, really, that all of us need God, but that also we were worthy of his sacrifice, right? We were important enough, every one of us, for him to come and lay his life down for it's not like he died for just some of you. <laughs> he died for all of us. Because he deeply cares about every one of us. He deeply cares about the story in our head and what it, what it tells us about us. And he wants that story to be healthy. And he wants it to be true. And he wants you to know how lovely you are how precious you are, how worthy you are of his time and his attention and his grace and his mercy, that he doesn't do that begrudgingly. It's an honor for him to love you. And so as we come and receive, remember that today.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to just sit and reflect in your truth. God, we know the consequences of not being able to love yourself. And uh, I think it would be really interesting <laughs> to, to be in that circle of disciples and to know kind of what they felt about watching Judas just walk away. I bet they would have taken him back. I bet they would have loved him. God, keep us connected to you and to one another. Help us to be the voices in people's lives who are struggling, who are just live with this narrative of just not enough, of just beating themselves up. God, help us to, to enter in and to give them hope, to remind them of how valuable they are. Help us to confront the, the boastful ones, the cocky ones that feel like they don't need God that they've got all the answers. Help us to love them as well. That's a lot like what Peter was like. God, we're just so grateful for your grace. Grateful that as we come here today, we are all in the same boat. We are all in desperate need of you. So may our, our shared brokenness, our shared humanity just unite our hearts today. We give you this time to speak to us.